So this talk, uh, which is number six, is called A Clearly Visible Dharma. But before we go on to that, I'd just like to reflect on um, this question of theory and, and practice. Um, if I'm entirely honest, I find it a distinction uh, rather difficult to make. Um, my understanding of, or my engagement, let's say, with, with the Dharma, with Buddhism over the years, um, has never really operated with that distinction, with that, um, with that uh, polarity. And I remember once uh, when I was uh, probably in my early 20s, I was a young Tibetan Buddhist monk, and we were studying with an old Mongolian lama called uh, Geshe Ngawang Nima, who used to refer to himself as Sormeba, uh, toothless. <laughs> and he used to say, one day you will remember what old toothless told you. <laughs> <laughs> and weirdly enough, I do remember what... <laughs> One thing, probably the only thing that old Toothless told us. Um, after we were studying um, Buddhist logic, um, remember that the Gelugpa school of Tibetan Buddhism is not all about um, mandalas and mantras and Dzogchen and all of these exotic things. They specialize in logic, epistemology, <laughs> Uh, psychology, philosophy, metaphysics, um, the idea being that you need to spend about 15 years getting a good handle on all of these topics before you'll have a sufficiently clear uh, con contextual understanding of Buddhism to really start um, doing you know, meditative retreats. And um, so we were studying uh, something about the nature of the syllogism. I have no idea what it was now, but it was pretty dry. And one of the, at the end of the lesson, one of my fellow monks uh, said, uh, Geshila, why can't we do more practice? Reasonable enough question. And uh, he replied, um, if you really knew how to study, you would be practicing. And those words have always um, remained with me. And my, my approach to Buddhism, uh, even with subjects as arcane as the structure of the syllogism, I've never thought of as somehow uh, separate from, uh, from, from the practice of the Dharma. Um, let me give you another, um, another uh, example of that. This also comes from the Tibetan tradition. This is from the Kadampa school. And it's the story concerning a man called uh, Drom. He was uh, the main disciple of the abbot uh, Atisha, who brought Buddhism to Tibet in the in the 12th century. And one day Drom was in the monastery and he looked out 
into the courtyard and he saw an old man um, walking around a stupa. And uh, he went outside and he went over to the stupa and he said to the old man, it's very good to circumambulate the stupa, but it would be far better if you practice the Dharma. Goes back into the monastery. Next day, Drom looks out of the window of the monastery and he sees um, the same old man, but now he's sitting uh, under an awning uh, in the courtyard and he's uh, studying a Buddhist text. And uh, he goes over to the old man and says, you know, very good that you're studying Buddhist philosophy, but it would be much better if you practice the Dharma. <laughs> goes back into the monastery. Next day, it's a shaggy dog story. <laughs> Next day, he looks out into the, into the courtyard and he sees that the old man now is sitting underneath a tree in meditation. And so he goes out, goes up to the old man and says, I'm so pleased to see you practicing meditation, but it would be so much better if you could practice the Dharma. <laughs> At which point, the old man has kind of had enough. And he says, well, what do you mean? And Drom's answer was, to practice the Dharma means there is no separation between the Dharma and your own mind. And that's again a story that I've pondered for many years. And it comes to this same point, as long as you have the sense that you are somehow doing an exercise or of meditation, or you are doing a study of a text, or you are circumambulating a stupa, as though that's something you ought or should to be do should be doing. There's still that uh, separation. There's still that split between uh, the Dharma and your own mind. It's still at one step removed from who you are. I guess this brings us back to this idea of integration where uh, the practice becomes, in some senses, who you are. It becomes uh, uh, integral to how you think and how you speak and how you work, uh, how you meditate. Um, and you, in a sense, you, you, you are completely given over to it. It becomes less and less self-conscious you don't have the sense of, hmm, here I am doing some meditation. Uh, it's just what you do. Oh, here I am studying philosophy, aren't I clever? No, it's just what you do. Or whatever it might be. And um, so the idea that theory is one thing and practice is another, um, yeah, I can see how that could well be um, uh, a way of looking at things. But um, personally, I find it difficult to understand. Possibly because my training in uh, the Dharma has always been within the context of a living tradition. I've never studied this stuff in a university. I've actually never been to a university. I've never, I've resisted what many of my, my colleagues and friends did when they left India, is they then went off and got a PhD in Buddhist studies. That always struck me as somehow um, a sort of betrayal does that make sense? 
Um, I could never quite bring myself to do that. I don't feel comfortable in that sort of environment, which is essentially about the Dharma being one thing and your mind being something else. It's about consciously setting up a distance between your object of study and your cold scientific objectivity, as they call it. Um, I could never... I, I was simply not willing to do that. When I read a Buddhist text, I read it not out of some abstract philological interest. I read it because I find myself in a conversation with it. I listen to what it has to say to me as, uh, as a suffering creature. Um, I can't make that distance. Um, likewise, when I translate a text, I do so not um, with the priority of being philologically exact, but I try to make the text, uh, the translation, sing. I try to, uh, I try to capture the poetry. I'm as much interested in how it speaks to me, how it resonates, as I am with uh, a dictionary precise definition of a particular term. So I do get a little uh, puzzled when um, I'm criticized for being theoretical and intellectual and scholarly and abstract, because that's simply not how I feel about this stuff at all. Uh, to me, it's all practice, um, everything. Uh, is 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 practiced very much like old someba, old toothless used to say. Uh, if you really knew how to study, you would be practicing. Which, in a rather indirect way, brings us to the um, the clearly visible Dharma. And this is um, uh, this is a text. Um, Again, with the uh, wanderer Sivaka, Molia Sivaka, there are, it's in your handout. There are two texts called to Sivaka, one and two. Now, I've put them together, but actually they appear, the first one, which we looked at the other day, about um, karma, the... Uh, the idea that uh, our experience, our pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience is all generated by our past actions, and the Buddha says, no, actually, that's not the case. That's the first dialogue with Sivaka. That appears in the Sanyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses. And uh, the second uh, dialogue uh, with the same person occurs uh, in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses. They're separated by hundreds and hundreds of pages of text, different volumes. And they're the only two occasions where this character appears. And on both occasions, he asks about something very central. In the first, he asks about the meaning of karma. In the second, he asks about the meaning of dharma. Uh, this second one is about the meaning of Dharma. He comes to the Buddha and he says, you talk of a clearly visible Dharma. In what respects is the Dharma clearly visible, immediate, 
inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise. In other words, as in the Drom story, uh, to become one with your own mind. Now this phrase, the Dharma is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise, is another one of these uh, pericopes, another one of these stock phrases that repeats through the canon. Uh, it's very famous. It's often used in the Pali chanting in the monasteries. I suspect it goes back uh, to a pretty early date. And it is, of course, a definition of what we mean by dharma. And um, again, this is a notoriously difficult word to translate. In fact, I won't even try. But it's such a central term um, that it does, you know, I think, require us to really think deeply about, you know, what does it mean? What's it about? And the Buddha here is, in a sense, offering not exactly a definition, but he's ascribing to the Dharma a number of, of qualities. It's clearly visible. It's immediate. Immediate um, is akaliko in Pali, which literally means non-temporal. Non-temporal. Um, this is Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, immediate, and I think it hits the nail on the head. In other words, the Dharma is something that is not um, achieved or attained through undergoing a series of steps in time, but it's actually atemporal. It's immediate. It's unmediated by time. It's inviting. It's, it's ehi pasiko, which literally means come here and look. Ehi pasiko. It's uplifting, it's inspiring. That's opanaiko. I'm not too sure of the exact meaning of that word. And it is to be personally experienced by the wise. The word experienced is related to the term vedana. It's the verb form of vedana. It's to be personally felt, sensed by the wise. And remember, not by the Buddhists, but by the wise. It's personally experienced by the wise. So, that's the question. This is the Buddha's answer. He says, let me ask you a question about this Sivaka. Respond as you see fit. What do you think? When there's greed within you, do you know, oh, there's greed within me. And when there is no greed within you, do you know, Ah, there's no greed within me. And Sivaka says, yes. And then, in the manner of the suttas, it then gives exactly the same um, question and answer with regard to hatred, delusion, and those qualities of mind associated with greed and hatred and delusion. So, in other words, um, the entire range of what I'm calling reactivity, reactive patterns, deeply seated reactive patterns. So with hatred, delusion and those qualities of mind associated with greed, hatred and delusion, when they are within you, do you know that they are present? And when they are not within you, do you know that they are absent? 
And Sivaka says, yes. And then the Buddha concludes, it is in this way that the Dharma is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise. Now, um, I think there's an awful lot packed into this dialogue. Uh, I think it's saying, to me, it says something very, very important. Um, first of all, um, the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, the absence of delusion, as we've already seen, is the definition of nirvana. So the Dharma is here equated with nirvana. And this experience of nirvana as clearly visible, inviting, uplifting, immediate, to be personally experienced by the wise, can be recognized already by a person, Sivaka, who's not a Buddhist, he's not a follower of the Buddha, he's just some, <coughs> let's say, spiritual seeker, philosopher, wandering around India. Um, and the way the Buddha um, answers his question is not by giving him a, um, you know, a clear, you know by, by saying, oh, well, what I mean is da-da-da-da-da. Look at how he starts his answer. He says, let me ask you a question about this. Respond as you see fit. So he's putting the onus of coming up with the answer on the questioner himself. Now this is, of course, very close to the Socratic method. Mm -hmm. uh, Socrates saw himself as a midwife. And his approach to teaching is sometimes called mayutic, which means like a midwife. In other words, the purpose of the teacher is not to impose a doctrine upon the student and the student just passively receives it. The good teacher is the one who draws forth from the student their own understanding. Uh, and this is actually what the word education literally means. E ducare means to draw out, to draw out of the student their own wisdom, their own understanding. And the teacher is really just a, a facilitator, a midwife, uh, uh, someone who uh, enables that insight to come forth. And it's really only when the, the student comes up with their own understanding is it truly their own understanding. They're not just mimicking or repeating what they've been told uh, is true. I think the Zen tradition, likewise, in the koans, uh, it's again very good examples of this approach. You know, Hui Neng says to Hui Zhang, what is this thing? How did it get here? Hui Zhang is silent. Hui Neng doesn't come along and give him a clever Buddhist answer. Hui Zhang then sits with that question for eight years and then comes up with his own response. To say it is like something is not to the point. That's Hui Zhang's response. It's pointless for us to repeat it as though it were ours. It's arisen out of his own inquiry, his own contemplation, his own questioning. It's his own answer. 
So here we have the Buddha basically revealing to Sivaka um, the, the meaning, uh, showing Sivaka, allowing Sivaka to come to his own understanding of what it means for the Dharma to be clearly visible and immediate and inviting and uplifting. In other words, the Dharma is simply referring to that capacity, those, that potentiality that each person has in their everyday life um, of not being reactive, of not being greedy, not being hateful, not being confused. Uh, this is a, a condition that is already uh, present each time reactivity dies down, each time reactivity is not present. He says, you can see it for yourself, right? Yes, says Sivaka. And that is already nirvana. Nirvana is, uh, is, 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 is present whenever we're not reacting. Now, of course, in, again, how do you fit this kind of statement with uh, a lot of Buddhist orthodox uh, belief, where nirvana is equivalent to enlightenment and so forth and so on? It, it marries much better with Zen, frankly. This has got a very Chan or Zen-like flavor to it, the idea of sudden awakening, that awakening or enlightenment is... Um, is imminent uh, in each moment of experience. It's already there. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's in a sense uh, uh, potential in each moment. It's not something in the distant future, some goal that we might, after many lifetimes of, of, of diligent practice, realize. Now there's another dialogue um, on along a very similar lines. Um, with a Brahmin called Janusoni. And um, he also, uh, in this dialogue, Janusoni is asking him about what does he mean to say that nirvana is clearly visible. Here, nirvana is stated explicitly. And uh, the Buddha's conclusion of that dialogue is uh, a person who has let go of greed and hatred and confusion neither plans for his own harm nor for the harm of others nor for the harm of both and he does not experience in his mind suffering and grief in this way brahmin nirvana is clearly visible so dharma nirvana are pretty much uh, synonymous at least in this context. What I think this uh, passage with Jiang Usoni shows us quite clearly is that um, this dying down or stopping of reactivity um, is, it exposes an ethical space. The core of Buddhist ethics, or what's often defined as the principle of Buddhist ethics, is non-harming. Now, this is sometimes translated as non-violence. Um, but non-violence suggests um, a kind of active aggression, violence. 
I think it's more precise to translate hingsa, ahimsa. Himsa's causing harm. Doesn't necessarily entail an overt act of violence. It's about causing harm, and it's causing harm to oneself, causing harm to others, causing harm to both. So when greed, hatred, delusion uh, somehow die down, um, that's not just a neutral absence, as I mentioned before, like my iPad doesn't have greed or hatred and delusion, but it's not enlightened. It also implies that the dying down of those reactive patterns um, reveals um, a mind of contentment, of equanimity, of tolerance, of love, of uh, clarity, of intelligence. Maybe not in a fully blown form, but certainly as an innate potentiality that um, uh, we can then, as it were, choose to act from rather than act from the destructive emotional patterns of greed and hatred and so on. Now, this brings us to uh, the third of the four tasks. Uh, the third task is to behold the stopping, literally. Niroda sachi karoti. To behold or to see with one's own eyes the stopping. And this refers to the stopping of reactivity or craving. And the practice is to actually contemplate what it's like, what it feels like, how you experience this stopping. Somewhat in the, on the lines of personally experience this stopping. And that requires um, more than just sort of registering. Oh, I, I don't have any greed happening right now. That's interesting. But actually to somehow register um, in an almost uh, somatic and visceral way what it's like to be non-reactive, to refine our conscious uh, sense of that uh, innate potentiality. And I think a lot of meditation, when we're not <coughs> overwhelmed by wandering thoughts and memories and fantasies and plans, when we settle into a calm, still, open attention, we can also spend time noticing how that calm, still, open attention um, carves out, as it were, um, a non-reactivity within ourselves. And um, the word the Buddha sometimes uses for this is that um, is the word viharati, which means to dwell. Uh, again, I'd like to spend a little bit of time dwelling on what dwelling means, to dwell. It's one of these words that is so is so fundamental to our human experience. Dwelling, abiding, living. 
Again, this is an, an idea also that Heidegger spends a lot of time thinking about, to dwell. Uh, and I like, similarly with the word, the path, things that are so deeply entrenched in our sense of human being that we, we can hardly, it's very difficult to know what they mean. They're too obvious in a way. They're too familiar. And remember the Buddha speaks of a number of dwellings. We are to dwell in loving kindness, to dwell in compassion, the Brahma Viharas, the divine dwellings. It's not that we understand loving kindness or, or, or generate loving kindness. We dwell in it. And I think perhaps the only way to really absorb what's meant here is for each of us to, to somehow start paying attention what it means to dwell. We dwell on this earth. As human, human beings are dwellers. We dwell on this earth. We dwell in a home. We dwell in an environment. We abide. And meditation is seen as a kind, another way of dwelling on the earth. When the Buddha uses the word emptiness in, um, in these early texts, in the Pali Canon, he doesn't talk of emptiness as something that's to be, to be understood, something to be known. He talks of emptiness as um, somewhere to dwell. Um, again, you have another text in your handout, the longer text. It's called The Shorter Discourse on Emptiness. It might just be headed on emptiness in the handout. Uh, I'm not going to go into that now. But um, it opens with Ananda uh, re remembering that the Buddha once said, for the most part, I dwell in emptiness. And then he asks him to explain what that means. And then the sutta is an answer to that question. Uh, and again, you can read it. If we have time, we can have a look at it. Or you can ask some questions about it. And so the, Buddhist, the Buddha understands emptiness as a dwelling. And at the end of the sutta, he describes you know, what this emptiness is empty of. It's empty of the asavas. Uh, or the, or again, greed, hatred, delusion. It's a slightly different formulation. Um, there's sensual desire, uh, becoming, ignorance, and views. Um, but it's the same sort of territory. And uh, the person who dwells in emptiness dwells in a non-reactive space in which the asavas are not operative very similar to the non-reactive space of, um, uh, of non, non, uh, where the reactions, the reactivity, the craving is absent. So we consciously uh, uh, notice and feel what it's like to dwell or live or abide in this non-reactive space. And that's the third task. The third task is to contemplate that, uh, to feel that, 
to sense that. And I think we do that anyway when we sit, but this is just somehow shining a light on that particular facet of uh, that experience so that we become attuned to what that feels like. So we consciously affirm and valorize those moments. And also, of course, we notice that when, when we uh, cease to dwell in that space, when we get carried away, when we get caught up in views and opinions, when we get overwhelmed by anger uh, or, or greed or whatever it might be. And this leads um, organically into the fourth task, which is the cultivation of the Eightfold Path, which begins, as we saw yesterday, with complete vision. You can't draw a line between these four tasks. It's not as though, again, very much in the language of uh, the Kachana Gota Sutta, is and is not. It's not as though here is the third task and we stop that and then now we've got the fourth task. Okay, put that one down, now we can go off and do something else. No, it's not like that at all. The, these four tasks seamlessly merge one into the other in a totally organic way. No differently from the way a seed uh, when it germinates, becomes a sprout which grows into a flower that then uh, bears seeds. There's no, there are no cut-off points between these different phases. That's a distinction that we can only make uh, conceptually in language. So the first task of embracing dukkha, life, uh, becomes uh, the, as it begins to embrace the reactions to life, the, these destructive reactions, it then morphs seamlessly into a kind of letting go. So this embrace becomes a release. And that releasing, that letting go, naturally uh, morphs into a stopping, letting go, letting be, the reactions naturally come to a stop. And in that stopping, in that dwelling in their emptiness, that naturally morphs into the opening of a path. And it might be worth uh, reflecting um, on what we mean by a path. The Buddha is using very, very foundational language, dwelling, path in particular. Now a path, um, if you think about it, is actually just an empty space. Uh, you, when, when we use the term, oh, oh look, there's a, you see that path that goes up the hillside over there? We, it, we think of it as though it's a, 
It's something that's imposed upon the landscape, a brown line on a green ground. But when you go up to it or walk along it and stop for a moment and just pay attention to what, you know, what's, you know, what a path is, get down on all fours, look, it's actually the absence of something. It's the absence of grass, the absence of trees and rocks and whatever it is that would inhibit the freedom of movement. A path is an empty space. It's an absence. So when Nagarjuna says, for example, that, that emptiness is the middle way, he's not making a kind of rhetorical point. You know, the real middle way, that's my philosophy of emptiness. He's making an utterly um, uh, factual statement. Uh, emptiness is uh, a path. Uh, emptiness uh, is the space of the path. Emptiness, therefore, uh, has no value in itself apart from the fact that it allows unimpeded, unobstructed movement. And it's the movement that it allows that becomes the path. Again, in, in Pali Sanskrit, the word path can be used as a verb. Uh, pradipatyate in Sanskrit, I think it is, which means... Um, to path. It might be more helpful if this word existed in English to talk of a pathing, that our practice is basically a pathing. And that pathing is uh, an unimpeded movement, unobstructed movement. Uh, this is also how, uh, in Buddhist philosophy, again, we're moving away from the Pali canon here. But um, uh, in later Buddhist philosophy, this is how they define space. Uh, space is defined as the absence of resistance. In other words, it's what uh, it, it's uh, it's that which allows us to get from one point to another. There's space in this room, not because it's you know there's so many cubic meter, meters of air, but there's space in this room from a Buddhist perspective because we can walk from this side to the other side without bumping into anything. Freedom of movement. Emptiness is freedom from movement, of movement. A path is freedom of movement. But a path is not just um, any old freedom of movement. It's freedom of movement that takes us somewhere. When you're walking along a path in the, in the wilderness, um, even though you don't really know where you are, you don't know exactly where it's going to go, what you can be assured of is that it will take you somewhere. It has a destination. It has a goal. And as a path, it's also that which allows you uh, to reach that destination because it is that space where nothing is standing in your way. And it's also, um, even when there's nobody around on the, in, in, in view, um, it is also something that connects you in, to a community. A path, remember, is only kept open by the tread of feet. Uh, people who have gone before you 
uh, keep it, have kept it open for you. If there were no one walking that path, it would rapidly disappear. And likewise, when you walk along it, you do your service to those who will come along later. So a path is both the experience of pathing is an experience of a tacit uh, indebtedness and a tacit uh, responsibility. Indebtedness to those who went before, responsibility for those who will follow. And um, that experience of pathing, I think, uh, allows us to understand why the entering into the Eightfold Path is defined as having finding confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. That's the definition of stream entry. And Buddha refers to the destination, awakening. Dharma refers to the practice itself, the moving along the path without obstruction. And Sangha refers to the fact that a path is always um, implicitly the experience of community and connectedness to those who've gone before, to those who come after. So I think when the Buddha describes stream entry um, as uh, uh, in, in this way, he's acknowledging actually the implicit metaphorical structure, to use a rather fancy word, the implicit metaphorical structure of the image of a path. So, the path, uh, therefore, is simply the continuity of that non-reactive space, but now translated into um, a life which has a purpose, a movement, and a community. And it's not just about our spiritual life, it has to do with how we see the world, as we described yesterday, with this complete vision. It has to do with how we make ethical and moral choices. It has to do with how we speak and act and work. Everything that constitutes our human life. And we also know that it's something that constantly risks being interrupted and blocked and stopped. Hence the word hindrance. The five hindrances. The whole idea of hindrance or obstacle, which is widespread in all Buddhist traditions, implies the idea of a path. The path is what's hindered. Um, much in our experience of hiking in the wilderness, if we go around a corner and there's a tree fallen over it, we come to a stop. We have to negotiate that obstacle. And likewise, when we're meditating, um, or when we're working or speaking or acting, we can hit a point in that practice where we hit up against a brick wall, metaphorically. We come to a stop, we get blocked, we get stuck, we can't figure out what to do. And this, I think, we witness very vividly in the practice of meditation. We, we, we're, we're happily 
being mindful, being attentive, being aware, focusing our concentration, and then, boom, five minutes later, we realize we've been off somewhere, and we feel slightly rattled inside. Um, we, we've lost that sense of being in a flow, in being in a stream. So this language, I think, is drawn very much from the primary human experiences of dwelling, of walking, or pathing, uh, very, very primary experiences of our humanity. So the fourth task is to cultivate the path. It's not as though the path is somehow magically lying ahead of us and all we have to do is take a leisurely stroll along it. The path is something that's constantly under threat. It has to be kept alive. Uh, we have to keep that, or we're challenged to keep that non-reactive space open and to act from within that space in a goal-directed way, in a purposeful way. And that's the practice of the Eightfold Path. It's also a practice which prov the, the entails a self-reliance. As we saw yesterday, um, we become independent of others in this process. The path becomes our own. A stream entrant is one for whom the path has become their own life. Again, story of Geshe Drom, when the Dharma and your mind are not, no longer two separate things. You have become the path. It's not something separate from you anymore. So it's a living, organic process, but nonetheless one that requires constant uh, diligence, attention, uh, awareness, so that we don't get suddenly whisked away. The reactivity surges up and whoop, we're gone. The path can just as easily be lost. Again, like on a hike, if you get distracted, um, suddenly you say, oh shit, where did the path go? Uh, we're lost. And when you're lost, you lose your bearings. Again, taking it from the example of being in the wilderness, you suddenly lose your bearings. You don't know which way to go anymore. At the same time, you find it extremely difficult to make any progress. You're staggering and stumbling through undergrowth. And also, you feel lost. With a path, even though there's no one around for miles, you don't feel lost. As soon as you lose the path, you get really scared. You're lost. So it's helpful, I think, to understand the processes of pathing by recollecting what it's like to have lost a path. And I think those metaphors are very pertinent to um, those moments where we feel that we've somehow lost touch with what we might call our practice. We, we feel directionless, life becomes more and more of a struggle, and we feel lost. So the idea that the path is a stream 
um, which is explicitly stated in the suttas, um, is a suggestion that it's like a flow. And a stream, of course, is a very much a metaphor for life. Stream is flowing water, not stagnant water. A stream is flowing water. Our life becomes uh, like a flowing stream. And we all know this experience when we're engaged in a task that really fulfills us, whether it's work or whether it's doing art or writing or taking care of a child. There's this wonderful sense of really feeling uh, fully alive, that all of our energies are integrated, focused, and there's a kind of joyousness that's uh, uh, experienced in such moments. Uh, there's a whole psychology of flow um, by this fellow called Csikszentmihalyi. <laughs> there's a trick to remembering that name, by the way. <laughs> Chicks, girls, sense me highly. <laughs> That's the only way I can remember it. That's how I do it, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to stop here. Um, uh, tomorrow we'll, we'll continue with this by looking at the, um, at the ethics of the path look more at the ethical dimension. Um, okay, we have half an hour or so. Um, is there anything you'd like to... Yes, um, Jean. Oh, oh, hang on, I can switch this off. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.